morning. Good morning. It's good to be good to be with you. Yeah. So as Steve said, we're going to be in a looking at the cross and looking at Easter from a few different angles over the course of the next three weeks. Just on the lead into Easter, wanting to see how Easter changes everything and look at the cross from a few different cultural perspectives. In some ways, picking up the back off the back of our invited series and wanting to look at how the cross changes everything, how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything through the lens of a few different cultures and looking at it the way that a number of different cultures do. Um, And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. So if you have a Bible and can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, that'd be brilliant. Um, But it's very easy as we look at, when we think about the gospel and think about the cross, it's very easy to look at it through the lens that we are used to looking at it through in our culture. And so if I was to say to you, say you're not a Christian, say you're new to church, and I was to say to you this morning, Jesus died for you, the way that you would understand that statement would likely be very shaped by the culture you're in. And if I was to say to Christians here, Jesus died for you, and we would go, yeah, yeah, he did, we would probably read that statement, think about what it means through the lens of our particular culture. And so, for instance, many, in many cultures in the world today, probably some of us here, this is not our culture, but in many cultures in the world today, they would think about obligations and behavior through the lens of honor and shame, that that is the main way that they would think about behavior being appropriate or inappropriate in a culture. So we act a certain way to recognize and establish honor of honorable people, and we act a certain way to avoid bringing shame on our community on our village or our religion or on our tribe or our family. And that probably, for many of us here, that is not the primary way that we tend to think about things being the right or wrong way to behave. Um, But if we do, if we're on a shame culture and we see things that way, then when we look at the cross, we will see it as the moment when the one with the highest position of honor becomes shameful and takes the form of a slave and walks around among us as a shameful person, and then dies a shameful death, and then rises again to have his honor vindicated, and to give that honor to all of those who trust in him, so that we are seated in the place of honor with our Father. That's the gospel, isn't it? But that's the way that some of us in the world would be likely to read what it means to say, Jesus died for you. But in Western Europe... Often, we don't tend to think, see things that way. So a lot of, I'm a Western European, and that's not naturally my culture. That's not naturally the way that we tend to think about things. We tend to think about things in terms of very clear right-wrong, more than shameful, honorable. And we think in terms of guilt and innocence. It's a more legal way of thinking about the way you should or should not do things. So people should do what's morally correct. And the idea that I might bring shame on my family isn't really a factor in my thinking as a Western European white guy. So I tend to think more in terms of guilt and innocence. And a classic example I read in a book recently about this, if you're, you're going swimming in the Middle East, if you are swimming and, the, and somebody blows the whistle, all the Western people stop and immediately stare at the lifeguard because they think they've done something wrong. And actually everybody else carries on happily swimming. And that, that's, that reflects a kind of a culture of a very sort of deferential to what might be right or wrong or legal or illegal rather than to necessarily what's shameful or honorable. And so for someone like me, for many of us too, to look at the cross, when we look at the cross, we see Jesus, who is innocent, being condemned as if he's guilty so that we, who are actually guilty, can be acquitted. So we take a a verse like 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the gospel too. 
But in our culture, we would see that bit, the guilt-innocence thing, very clearly. And then there's another kind of culture, which some of us may be from as well, especially if it's a, especially cultures where animism or a respect for ancestral spirits is very common, where we would see things through the lens of fear and power. And sociologists sometimes divide the world up this way. This, well, there's kind of guilt, innocence, honor, shame, fear, power. And if you see the world through the lens of fear and power, there are spirits, and some of those spirits have more power and deserve more respect than others. And so when we look at the cross, we see Jesus overpowering the one who is weaker than him. We see the strong man conquering the weak one. And we see Jesus conquering the devil and conquering the one who holds all of humanity in slavery to fear and triumphing over the devil and over the demons and over the powers of empire and the Roman Empire and Caesar and all powers and even over death itself. And we see Easter in that sense as victory. So who is right? Is the cross about removing shame? Or is it about justifying the ungodly? Or is it about conquering the darkness? Yes, it is, isn't it? It's about all of those things. And, and actually, for some of us, you, you may not be new to Christianity, and you may have heard the Christian message explained in a way that is out of kilter with the culture you're from. So you may have heard it explained this way, and you think, well, that, just, that isn't really speaking my language. I want to share with you, and over this three weeks, we're going to be sharing with you that the gospel actually provides the answer to the deepest needs of every culture, But sometimes we might explain it in ways that are a bit narrower. So in this series, we're going to look at the gospel from various angles. As it were, standing and looking at the cross from different perspectives. And thinking, oh, it's different from here. And if I stand here, I look at it in another way. That's what we're going to try and do. But I want to talk this morning about the removal of shame. Jesus as the one who removes the shame of who we are and restores us to a place of honor. And I want to read you a story. This is from a book called Honor and Shame by Roland Muller. Muhammad was a Jordanian friend of mine. He worked for the post office and the secret police. His job was to read mail that came into the country where I was working. After a while, he discovered that the mail that came to my post box was rather interesting, and he put into motion a plan to meet the owner of the post box. It wasn't long before he offered to relieve the guard at the post office door, and that evening he saw me take mail from my post box. The next day I returned, and Muhammad made his move. We met, and a friendship developed. Soon, Muhammad had a copy of the Bible to read. One night, Muhammad arrived at my house, obviously agitated. After the traditional cup of tea, Muhammad closed the windows to my living room and sat close beside me, speaking almost in a whisper. His reading of the Bible had progressed smoothly until he had arrived at 1 Samuel 2, verse 8. It was Hannah's song of praise for her giving her baby Samuel. When Muhammad arrived at verse 8, he found something he couldn't cope with. Hannah said, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the beggars from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Muhammad threw the Bible down on the coffee table. No, he said emphatically, this cannot be true. A beggar is a beggar. A prince is a prince. This is garbage. As I stared at Muhammad's face, I suddenly saw a truth I had never seen before. This wasn't garbage. This was the gospel. So the question this morning is, how is the cross gospel to Muhammad? To somebody from a strongly honor-shame culture, where your station in life is part of the way the world is, and where certain things are just shameful, period, and certain things are just honorable. How is the cross gospel to Muhammad? Here's 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 4. 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. 1 Peter 2 is one of the most emphatic statements in the Bible that the gospel is about the removal of shame, about the taking away of shame. And if we look at this passage carefully, we'll see one or two key themes coming through. And two things in particular. One of the things we'll see, which is really obvious as we read through it, is that in the gospel, shameful people become honorable. And the other key theme, which is harder to find, but it's there and we need to look for it, is that the reason why shameful people become honorable is because in the gospel, secondly, the honorable person became shameful. That's how the gospel works in this text. Now, the first one, as I say, is more obvious, and it appears in almost every verse. In the gospel, shameful people become honorable. So look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you yourselves, the people of God, Jew and Gentile, all together, you're spiritual, you're holy, you are acceptable. Verse 6, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever, whoever believes in him. Now that, to us, we read through that probably many of us and think, yeah, that's, that's just part, of, part and parcel, I'm a Christian. Whoever believes, yeah, of course. Notice how much that statement would trouble Muhammad. Yeah? Whoever. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's garbage. A beggar is a beggar. A prince is a prince. But Peter is crystal clear that in the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, anyone who believes, whether you're a beggar or a prince, will not be put to shame if you have trust in Jesus. Right? It blows the categories that we would otherwise use and that many billions of people in the world today naturally live out our lives shaped by that kind of thinking. Many in this room. That's very traditional to our culture. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that whoever, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. It's not just that shame is gone. It's that honor has been reinstated. So it's not just that your shame is removed, but you are actually given honor. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Isn't it great we sung that song this morning that's just affirming these things as truths about us. You are 
a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So you are, if you're in Christ, you are chosen, royal priests owned by God. Again, you're royal. Muhammad would struggle with that, wouldn't he? Muhammad is going, no, 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 a beggar isn't, a beggar is a beggar, a prince is a prince. And the gospel, 1 Peter 2 is saying, no, in Christ, a beggar is a prince. He's a king, he's a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Verse 10, does it again. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that actually, in some ways, is the high point of the whole passage. And you've got to know that the context, where that quote comes from, that is a a reference back to Hosea chapter 2 in the Old Testament. And Hosea 2 is a passage about how, it's a strange book, Hosea, because it sort of compares Israel to a prostitute. And there is a moment in the story of Hosea where the prostitute, Israel, is about to be uncovered and exposed in shame, but then God has mercy upon her and restores her. And that's where this verse comes from. Once you weren't a people, but now you are. Because the, the God of mercy has seen your shame and has covered it and has restored you to a place of honor. In Christ, shameful people become honorable. Whoever believes in him, whoever they are, will not be put to shame. Now, for many cultures, that's kind of easy to apply. For many of us, this is like... You're teaching ground to suck eggs. You're familiar with this way of thinking about the gospel. Some of us, it may genuinely be the first time we've ever even seen it. We may just not notice words like honor and shame when we read through them in our Bible readings. If you're from a Middle Eastern culture, though, the chances are this dynamic is very obvious to you. If you're from a Far Eastern, an East Asian culture, if you like, you're pro- this is very obvious to you. You know all about respect and honor and deference and saving face. and all. That's the way that... Culture works. It's very intuitive to you. But for Western people among us, which is quite a lot of us, it may be less familiar. So I hope this may help. Um, I met a pastor a few years ago who told the story of a woman in his church who had been molested as a small child and as a result had carried an intense sense of shame for what had happened to her. Because shame isn't simply about Well, of course, what you do is often about what has happened to you. And she lived with this sense of intense shame for many years. And as a result, she was very promiscuous as a teenager. Uh, She slept around and she just lived a very out there kind of sexual life. And then when she got married, even during her engagement, she was unfaithful to the man she eventually married. But she didn't tell him. And then later in their marriage, he finds out that all of this has happened. And when, in that moment when she finally tells him what's happened, he leaves the house and she thinks, this is it, I've, my marriage is gone, I should never have said anything. And he returns later that evening with a white nightgown and he says, you need to take off what you're currently wearing and I want to put this on you as a demonstration that Jesus sees you as pure and white for everything you've done and everything that you have had done to you and so do I. And that is a picture of the removal of shame that might help us who are from a more Western context see whoever believes, whoever believes in him, whoever trusts Jesus will not be ashamed. And it might be a way that might help some of us for whom it's not naturally part of our culture to see the gospel in through that honor shame lens. I think it's beautiful, but that is only half the story. Right? The gospel in this passage is, yes, about how shameful people become honorable, but... The reason why shameful people become honorable is that at the cross, 
in Easter, if you like, the one truly honorable person became shameful. All right, look at verse 4. Jesus is described as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus is the rejected one. It's his rejection. It's his, the fact that he was despised, that he was marginalized, ostracized, if you like, ashamed, that grounds our lifting to a place of honor. Verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a beautiful text about who, how people see Christ, isn't it? The, the builders looked at this stone. They went, ah, oh, that's useless. Tossed it out. Don't even need it. And God says, I am going to make it the cornerstone of the whole building. That's the nature of Jesus. The basis for our acceptance is his rejection. That's where the honor comes from. The basis for our honor is his shame. And if we approach the cross in that light, then all sorts of elements of the gospel story suddenly become a bit more important to us. They suddenly become obvious why they're there. Because I think... And again, I'm speaking for myself here, but I bet I'm not the only one who would read the gospel story and screen out the elements of shame in it because we don't really notice them in our culture. And that's not true for everyone here, of course, but for many of us, it probably is that we see the, the condemnation legal guilt bit because that's the way our culture works, many of us, but we might not see the honor-shame dimension going on in the same place. But when we read the story of the cross in the Gospels and we just go through them and read what the writers actually say, we might be surprised to learn how much of it is about humiliation and shame rather than guilt or even physical pain. So, for instance, the gospel writers make a lot of the fact that Jesus was dressed up with a purple robe and given a crown of thorns. Now, i reading that as a kid and teenager and probably adult as well. I just thought, wow, a crown of thorns must really hurt. So for me, the shame dimension isn't really there. I don't think about the mockery because in my culture, that's not a big deal. We mock people all the time. But so I, didn't, I don't really think of that as being a major feature. I think this is about physical pain. But in their culture, in a Middle Eastern culture, this is you have, you have taken God and you have dressed him up as if he is a king and then mocked him for it, even though he is a king. They focus a huge amount on the fact that Jesus is ridiculed. We find all kinds of things coming back to Jesus, taunts and insults that are quoted in the Gospels. A lot of the Gospel story focuses on the ridicule, the mockery, the insults, the taunting, the spitting upon. I'd Again, in my culture, being spat upon is not very nice, but it doesn't denote anything like the insult, the, the drama, the terror of being spat upon as an honorable person in a Middle Eastern culture. So none of the taunts or the insults. Prophesied to us, Christ. Come on, then. Who hit you? He saved others. Look at him. He can't save himself. Hail, King of the Jews. Oh, hail, King of the Jews. Aren't you the Christ? Well, come down then. Save yourself and us. Have you noticed? They're everywhere. You read the story of the cross, and you think... The gospel writers are very interested in this. And for some of us are going, yeah, we know, we see it all the time. Some of us, we miss that because I'm effectively looking at it through a particular culture. And the one that struck me recently was the, um, I give my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. The idea that you have your beard plucked out. Now, that to me would be trivial in a way because it would be physically uncomfortable. Like if you're trying to pluck hairs out, of course, it's very painful, but nothing compared to crucifixion. So I wouldn't really see that as a big deal. But again, you put that to somebody, probably people in the room from a Middle Eastern culture say, that is hugely shameful to have someone physically pulling the hairs off your face. 
That's not just about how that hurts. That is about this is shameful. This is degrading. This is disgusting. This is treating me as if I'm subhuman. Now, in a Western culture, all of those things are trivial compared to the physical pain. So we read the story and we think that must be physically excruciating, which, of course, it is. But in a Middle Eastern, on a shame culture, those shameful things are a much bigger part of it. So to illustrate the point, some of you may remember in 2006, a man called Zinedine Zidane, who was, some would say, well, he was the best player in the world, certainly for some time, and many would say even in 2006, he was still the world's best player. He was played sort of attacking midfielder for France, and it's the World Cup final. And Zinedine Zidane, in 2006, France won the World Cup in 1998. They lost it to Brazil in 2002, and then they get a chance to reclaim it, and they're in the World Cup final, and he's the world's best player, and they should win. And it's extra time, and Zinedine Zidane is insulted. His sister is insulted by one of the other players, a guy called Matarazzi, who's playing for Italy. And Zinedine Zidane, without really thinking about it, turns around and headbutts the guy, knocks him straight down, and immediately is sent off. And France lose the game and lose the World Cup. Now, what the aftermath was fascinating because what happened was the Western media went crazy about how stupid this was. Have you ever seen anything so stupid in your life? The World Cup being the greatest team in the world and you can't turn a blind eye to somebody saying something unpleasant about your sister. What are you doing, man? This is crazy. Your whole nation is disappointed. And, of course, the Middle Eastern press and Middle Eastern journalists within the British press were saying, what are you talking about? It is very obvious to us even if it isn't to you, that he, he's an Algerian Muslim by background. I mean, he's non-practicing, but he's an Algerian Muslim family. You don't ever say, hear a word said against your sister without taking the guy out. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying in his culture, that's what, don't start. But, but you see, in, in, in Western, people are going, I, I don't know. Even, I wouldn't like people insulting my sister either, but I wouldn't throw away the World Cup to defend her honor. But in an Algerian culture, of course you would. It was just, in fact, they were amazed that the Western culture didn't get it. They were thinking, this is bizarre that you don't see that that's how billions of people on earth think about honor and shame. Because my sister's honor is more important than a football match. Now, when you read the gospel through that kind of lens, you think, yes, of course, there are billions of people around today, including, and billions of, pe- billions of people across history, including almost all the people who wrote and feature in this book, who saw the world through an honor and shame lens. You defend your honor at all costs. But Jesus never said a word. Jesus never said a word. He was insulted, spat upon, mocked, ridiculed. He had all of those experiences. He didn't say anything. He takes all the shame upon himself so that you and I might be liberated from it. He absorbs it all. Perhaps the most shocking aspect of this is, of course, that he dies naked. And that's obviously shameful even to those of us who are a bit tone deaf about honor shame because we're in a very British kind of culture. But he dies naked. That's obscured in all religious arts, pretty much. We cover him up with a loincloth out of reverence. But it's crucial to the story. The creator of clothes, of sheep, of linen, of wool, of everything, the creator of clothes is stripped They play dice for his tunic. His arms are outstretched, nailed, so he can't even do what we would all do if we were exposed in public. 
He can't cover himself, can he? He's like this, dying naked. And taunts, by the way, about his Judaism, king of the Jews, may well have something to do with the fact that he was circumcised because the Romans thought that was a shameful thing for to happen to a man, like an emasculating thing. So they are mocking him and brutally going for him, and he can't do anything to protect himself, and God dies naked in public over six hours. There is no more shameful experience anywhere. Why? Because his rejection leads to our acceptance. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He becomes as shameful as we are in order that we might become as honorable as he is. That's the gospel. Before we conclude, I just want to point out one more thing about this passage of Scripture and its relationship to shame that might help us see it in another perspective. This passage of Scripture is written by Peter, by the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter had experienced shame. Right? Peter had experienced a kind of shame that perhaps for many of us is more common, the idea shame as a personal sense of exposure and regret. The night before Jesus died, Jesus told his disciples, you will all fall away, and Peter was defiant. Not me, Lord, but Jesus told him that before the cockerel crowed, Peter would deny him three times. Then Jesus was praying, and Peter fell asleep, which is not a good start. Then they came to arrest Jesus, and Peter took a swing at the high priest's servant and chopped his ear off. Now, again, we go, well, that's, you know, that's taking up arms against the soldiers. No, it isn't taking up arms against the soldiers. This is a very lame version of that. This is a version, the take up arms against the soldiers would be one thing, but he didn't. He took up arms against the high priest's servant, who was the little guy who was carrying the torch for the high priest, right? Soldiers everywhere, like built like this, and then a guy built like me, go, yeah, and Peter goes, well, I'm going to chop his ear off then. And immediately is rebuked by Jesus for having done it, who then heals the man's ear immediately. Then the disciples all run away, including Peter. Then, just as Jesus predicted, Peter denies ever knowing Jesus. He takes an oath to that effect. There's an interesting detail in the story in John's Gospel. John says, at the time, he was warming himself by a charcoal fire. We'll see in a minute why that matters. As the cockerel crows... Jesus turns and looks straight at Peter. And he runs outside and he weeps bitterly. Then Jesus dies. Peter, we can easily imagine, is haunted by regret and shame. The shame I've brought on my master. The shame I've brought on my fellow disciples. The shame I've brought on my family, on myself. I imagine him reliving that day in his mind over and over again. Wishing he'd done things differently unable to sleep, trying to move past it, but failing. A week or so later, Jesus has risen, and he meets Peter, but Peter is still a mess. And Jesus makes his disciples breakfast on the beach. And John tells us that they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and bread. I think about that charcoal fire. I think about the smell and how it must have taken Peter back to where he was. I think about, you know how smells are just so evocative. They can take you to a place like nothing else, can't they? Like the smell of polish on the wooden floor of my school. And my mum's laundry detergent. And the smell of a wine you drink on holiday. And then you have it again in South London. You think, I'm back there. You know, that kind of thing. Imagine what it's like for Peter getting within the wafts 
of the charcoal fire and thinking, it's happening again. I let him down. I'm guessing it all comes flooding back for Peter that night, that weakness, that shame. But Jesus takes him to one side, away from the group, and he says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. And Jesus restores him, and he commissions him. And seven weeks later, Peter is preaching the first ever Christian sermon, and he's leading the entire church in the world. And 30 years after that barbecue, he takes up his pen And he writes this, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Muhammad, that young woman who was molested as a child, Peter, you, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for taking our shame upon yourself and liberating us from its power so that we might be given a seat of honor at your table, welcomed into the Father's family, adopted as his children, with all of the shame of our past taken away. We are so grateful for it, Lord. We pray that you would help us see it. And we pray that those, perhaps who even right now, are caught up in shackles of shame for things that have happened to them or for things that they have done, that you would break the power of shame through the power of Jesus and that we would be restored to the honor that you had always intended for us because of your journey to become shameful on our behalf. We thank you and we love you. Amen. Amen.